Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we will start off by checking in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who's going to give us a sneak peek at the articles coming up in the October-November 2010 issue of the magazine. Then we'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, author and professional genealogist Sharon DeBartolo Carmack is back to give us some tips for figuring out exactly which guy in the census is our ancestor from her article called Finding Mr. Right. And in our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite sites. It's called Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness. And finally, in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Allison shares some great brick wall buster strategies from Family Tree Magazine's Brick Wall Busters webinar. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Um, Allison, you know, we've talked about in the editor's segment that uh, it is a chance to get kind of a sneak peek behind the scenes at Family Tree Magazine. How about a sneak peek of the next issue of the magazine? Absolutely. We have one coming up in between this show and next show, so it's a perfect opportunity. It's um, our November issue, which seems awfully far ahead, but it's October-November issue, and um, there's a lot of really good stuff coming up in it. The cover story is about getting organized, but it takes a kind of different tack on that topic by talking about ways that you can save space, you know, genealogy papers and books and photos and all of the stuff that we accumulate really has a way to pile up. But there's some ideas that we had about how you can cut down on the amount of stuff that you're collecting and kind of get it under control. So uh, this is going to be a must-read story for most of our audience, I think. Oh, absolutely. And a great way to... uh get ready for Family History Month, which of course is in October. Um, I know everybody struggles with stuff and clutter, don't we? (laughs) Just staying organized. We do. I personally am an organization freak. I like to keep everything neat and nifty. But when it comes to my genealogy, it is a challenge. So this uh, article has a lot of good ideas. It's kind of the less glamorous side of genealogy, don't you think? It is definitely (laughs) not glamorous. And judging by the photos some of our readers have shared with us, clearly, clearly not glamorous. It's pretty scary. (laughs) Good. Okay. Well, we will all look forward to that. What else is coming up in that issue? Um, I think one of my other favorite articles in this issue is one called Basic Training. Um, It's written by Lisa Alzo, who's one of our regular contributors. Mm -hmm. And the idea is boot camp for your genealogy. So we have sort of a six-step regimen to get your research on the right track and succeed in your genealogy. So um, it's got some really cute illustrations to go with it. And really, it's, you know, some principles that everybody can use and everybody can get something out of. Oh, and Lisa's so good at that. I mean, she's, you know, on the mark with with all that process. And you know what I find is interesting, even as a longtime researcher, 
going over articles like that, you always pick up on stuff that you've kind of let go, or it's just a wonderful refresher. And then, of course, for the person who's new to research, it's a must read. Absolutely. You know, everybody can use a refresher on some of the basics and the fundamentals. Really not basics. I don't want to overemphasize, you know, that it's too too easy, but really just, you know, those fundamental things that if you make sure those are, you know, happening right, then you're really setting yourself up for success. Yeah, exactly. A couple other things. Everybody's always interested in the tech side of genealogy and thought I'd throw out a few teasers for some of our online and tech content. We have a web guide to onegreatfamily.com, which is pretty widely used uh, website, um, but within genealogy circles, I think some folks aren't um, real familiar with how it works and what it can do. So we've got an in-depth guide to that. And something else I think is a must-read in the issue is a roundup of databases that you can access for free at Family History Centers. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, the Family History Centers are the... uh, facilities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they're kind of like a branch of the big family history library in Salt Lake City. And they're great for renting microfilm and getting access to those records, but some folks don't realize that there are actually electronic resources that you can access there, which provides you with access to subscription content, but you don't have to pay for it. So, for example, if you wanted to tap into World Vital Records U.S. Collection or Footnote.com, you can actually do that at a Family History Center for free. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, great way to save money if you're on a budget or, you know, also a great way to evaluate a service uh, without paying uh, to make sure that you can get your money's worth. That's a great idea because, yeah, sometimes you feel like, oh, if I want to take, do I want to take that leap and then find out that there's only, you know, two things that I want or whatever. You can kind of plan out your trip, save some of those kinds of searches on a list and then take it with you in there. And are they all the same at each location and that's what you're going to list or do they actually vary by location? Well, there's a core set that is available at every family history center and we list all of those. But we also highlight a couple of extras that are available only at certain family history centers. Oh, that'll be a tear out. <laughs> tear it out and post it, you know, and, and keep it with you so you can take it with you to uh, to make the visit. Oh, wonderful. We'll look forward to the October-November issue of Family Tree Magazine. Thank you, Allison, for the sneak peek. Thank you. To find out what's going on in the world of genealogy, we are going to check in with the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Well, what's new in the world of genealogy? Well, one big piece of news recently is that Ancestry.com announced that it has acquired the research firm called Pro Genealogists, which is one of the bigger, um, better-known professional genealogy research firms in the industry. They also played a large part in Who Do You Think You Are, the show that people were so excited about that aired in the spring. Well, that acquisition sounds ideal for their Expert Connect service. That started up not too long ago, right? Right. Ancestry.com started Expert Connect last year, which was, it's a service where um, you can hire someone to go do a lookup for you real quick, or you can hire someone to do an entire research project for you. And so I think this um, acquisition kind of builds on Expert Connect, but it's not really clear what exactly they'll be 
developing with the partnership. So that'll be interesting to watch. Well, it sounds like they're making more of a commitment to it and certainly putting some wonderful experts uh, within closer reach to so many of their users. Right. You sort of, um, you let people bid on whatever you need done. So you can search profiles of researchers and where they are, and maybe you just need a, you know, someone to run to the library for you and look in a book or run to the courthouse, or maybe you're just at a brick wall and you need someone to do major research for you. And I haven't heard, like, how profitable it is, but I think that, um, that Ancestry.com is getting a lot of um, business there. Well, it certainly sounds like a, a deeper commitment in that area, and they certainly have some real expertise to pull from there from pro genealogists. Right, and they kind of have the name and the history. They've been, I think about 15 years they've been in business. It's somewhere between 10 and 15. I've heard both numbers. And I see on your blog that you also have been talking about some sources for free online family and local histories. Tell us about that. Right. I have been working hard on um, editing the Family Tree University class called Published Genealogies that George Morgan has developed for us. And there's a list in there of sites where you can find um, published genealogies, um, regimental histories, county histories, church histories, and these are digitized books that usually you can do a search of the book text, and there are just so many sources out there, and they're not all ones that you've heard of. Um, for example, the um, let's see, the Quinnipiac University in Connecticut has local histories and biographies on their website, so we have a link to that on the blog. Some bigger published genealogy sources and sources of other books, too, uh, BYU Family History Archive, um, eHistory, Google Books, of course, Heritage Quest Online, which is the service that you can use at a lot of public libraries, and Internet Archive. And then there are some that are maintained by uh, historical societies and libraries, such as Historic Pittsburgh, the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County has a digital library, Wisconsin Historical Society. There are just so many of these smaller sources of great digitized books. It's pretty amazing how now complete books can be found online and read online. Um, and to think that they include these comprehensive family histories, that's fantastic. And what a wonderful collection, because they really are spread all over the internet. Right. And in some of these sites, you can just click next and you just page right through the book like you would, you know, a paper book sitting in front of you. And in some cases, you can download the entire book or the page that you're looking at. Well, if you'd like to check out that terrific list of family histories that are available online, um, go to the show notes. I've got links there for you for that, as well as Diane's article on ancestry. And as always, Diane, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on in genealogy. Thanks. You're welcome. Here's a question for you. What does the TV show The Bachelorette have to do with genealogy? In today's top tip segment, Sharon DiBartolo Carmack will give us the answer from her article called Finding Mr. Right. Welcome back to the show, Sharon. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. Well, okay. So the first sentence in your article says, have you ever watched The Bachelorette? Okay, Sharon, what in the world does The Bachelorette have to do with genealogy? 
Well, just like genealogists who have to pick amongst many men that they find in the records, the bachelorette goes through a process of elimination in trying to find Mr. Wright and trying to find the right man for her. And a genealogist does the same thing because as you're researching records, you may find that you have two men of the same name, three, four, five, a half a dozen men of the same name in the same area, in the same community, and it may not even be a man. I am working on a situation now where I have two women of the same name born about the same time, and I'm trying to determine which one is the person I'm after. And so like the bachelorette who goes through a process of elimination and trying to decide which one is right for her, that's what you do in genealogy too. You go through a process of elimination to determine which guy or which girl in the records is your ancestor, the one that you're actually looking for. Exactly. And you give us nine strategies that you say will ensure that we have found the right one to commit to (laughs) using the bachelorette. Well, let's talk about some of those because that is such a big challenge. Everybody faces it at some point when you have these common names. Um, Where do you start off? What's the first tip that you would give somebody who's trying to look at a, a group of people that look so similar and figure out which one's the right one? Well, exactly. Well, let, let me backtrack just one step b- before that and say even if you don't have two men of the same name in the same community, um, a colleague of mine who unfortunately is no longer living but Marsha Rising, she always said assume there are two people of the same name in the same community. That keeps you straight. That keeps you always questioning, have I got the right person? Mm-hmm. Did someone else with the same name move into the community that you weren't aware of and this way you make sure you're keeping yourself on track. So always assume there are two people of the same name. Great advice. But I would say the first thing to be looking at is to be writing down everything you know either in a chronology or a compiled genealogy. Um, all the identifying information of that person. Because no two men, no two women will have the same children, the same, they might have the same number of children, but they won't name their children the exact same names all the way through. They may have married a woman of the same name. Um, they may have both married Marys, um, but certainly their last names will be different. So if you know the woman's maiden name, of course, record that. And they won't own the same land. They won't pay the same taxes. So make a list, make a chart showing each person and as much identifying information for each person as you can. Then if a discrepancy shows up, then you know, whoops, wait a minute, I've got, I've got a problem here. This, this can't apply to this particular person. It must apply to the other one. Or maybe there's a third guy that you don't even know about. So that chart, uh, that ID chart is a good thing to get started with. And it gives you that visual record because these can these processes can take some time, can't they? And you really have a lot of data you're trying to keep straight. Exactly. You talk about doing a background check and, and tapping into the different records that you have. Uh, but what caught my eye was number three. Now, and I guess with The Bachelorette, this may be caused, called stalking. You have scope out his address. <laughs> but what do you mean by scope out his address when you're talking about an ancestor? Okay, well, if you have somebody who is um, 
um, in an urban area as opposed to a rural area, um, you want to make note of what his address is and, and where he's living um, and follow that as well because you can have, if you've got somebody in a big area like New York City or Chicago or, or Boston and you're researching a very common name, you want to know where these people are living so that that could also be an identification for you is the address. So you follow him in the census records or you follow him in city directories and make sure you've got the right guy at the right address. And you also mentioned noting their neighbors as, again, something that's unique about that individual. Exactly. And just like no two men will have the same children, they won't have the same neighbors unless they happen to both live on the same street. (laughs) Sure, it's possible. And so if they happen to live in the same neighborhood or on the same street, then you have to use other identifiers to identify them. Uh, Number six also caught my eye because I have a real interest in the uniqueness of handwriting. And of course, we're lucky enough to have documents where our ancestors hand wrote something. What do you mean by analyzing the ancestors handwriting in this case? Okay, well, in this case, I don't mean analyzing it for their personality traits or right. that. What I'm meaning is if you've got one guy who signed his name and one guy who made his mark, okay, you probably have two different guys. But like everything else, you can't hold the rule hard and fast because I have um, a case of a young woman and she's on her deathbed. She's too weak to sign her name, but I know she can sign her name based on everything else I know about her. So she made her mark. So don't assume that a man or a woman making their mark means they're illiterate. There may be a physical reason why they can't sign their name. But in trying to identify people, that would be a way to distinguish two people by the same name is either by a signature or a mark. Also remember, too, when you're looking at uh, records such as deeds or wills, what you're looking at most likely in the copy books is a copy. It's not your ancestor's signature. It's the right. signature, and then it'll say signature or SS or whatever. Um, unless you look at a couple of deeds or a couple of wills and you see, oh, these are the originals that were bound and I can tell Mm -hmm. the signature is different than this one and this one. So that's what I mean by looking at the handwriting and analyzing that to see if that is another clue that can help you determine which person is yours. One other thing I really liked about your article was that you have a case study in here, and it's called He's My Man. And it's it's so true because, you know, we can hear these tips, but when you really see it in practice and how it plays out in a particular search strategy, uh, that is so helpful. And you really, it looks like it's um, two pages here, and you really walk us through the whole thing. So I, I highly recommend for those of you who are facing this same dilemma that Sharon's talking about, check out this article in the September 2010 issue of the magazine, because this case study really does spell it out step by step and help you not only learn these tactics, but then how to put them into practice. Sharon, as always, you know, you're as a certified professional genealogist really comes through in the article, and we are so lucky to be able to tap into your expertise. Um, Thanks so much for coming on the show and um, telling us how to distinguish between these gentlemen that uh, all quite look the same on paper. It can be very challenging. Thank you so much. 
You are quite welcome. I'm happy to do it, and I hope everybody is a successful bachelor or bachelorette in trying to eliminate the, the ones that aren't our ancestors and determine the ones that are. In today's 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, I thought we would take a look at a website that has been around for quite a while by internet standards, but is still going strong. The Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness was launched back in 1999, and it's helped thousands of genealogists locate information through the kindness of research volunteers. The Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness is a global volunteer organization. There are over 4,000 volunteers across the United States and in many international locations have helped thousands of researchers accomplish tasks such as doing a lookup of courthouse records to taking pictures of tombstones. And all they ask in return is reimbursement for their expenses, never their time, and a thank you. Each person who volunteers through the website has agreed to do a free genealogy research task at least once per month in their local area as an act of kindness. While the volunteers of Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness, which is often known as R-A-O-G-K, have agreed to donate their time for free, people who make requests must pay the volunteer for his or her expenses in fulfilling the request. Things like the cost of copies, printing fees, postage, film, parking fees, etc. It's still a tremendous savings, if you think about it, over making the trip yourself. Personally, I had a wonderful experience a couple of years ago with the Random Act site. I was desperately looking for a cemetery record in Ohio, and it looked like a local library there in Ohio really was the one place that had the book that I needed. Well, not only did the research angel who answered my request offer to go to that library, do the lookup and email me a digitized copy of the page, she offered that she often makes the drive very near the actual cemetery. And she said she would be happy to take a photo of my ancestor's tombstone. In the end, she found several ancestors and photographed them all for me. I was absolutely thrilled and so taken by her going above and beyond that I sent her a bouquet of flowers and a really sincere note of thanks. If you're looking for some help or you'd like to become a volunteer, you can head over to raogk.org. And at the bottom of the homepage, you'll find some links there to frequently ask questions to request and frequently ask questions to volunteer. Many people find that they are anxious to volunteer once they have been the recipient of a kind act. Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness is a wonderful idea and a wonderful website. Well, in this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Allison Stacy back. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for coming back. You know, by the time folks hear this episode, you will have already finished up the, the free webinar that you guys did, kind of the behind the scenes with the editors at Family Tree Magazine. So that's kind of fun. It's a great introduction to the whole idea of webinars for those who haven't participated. 
But just because maybe somebody hasn't attended a webinar yet, they can still participate through the recorded versions, right? That's right. We do record all of the webinars that we do every month, and those become available in a recorded format in our store, shopfamilytree.com. So even if you can't make it to the live event, there's still an opportunity to get all of the great advice that we're sharing. And I was just thinking that because this episode, we kind of have a theme going of problem solving, um, was hoping that you would share some tips from the webinar that you did on brick wall busters, um, because that was terrific. And I know that you had a lot of great tips. We sure did. The brick wall busters webinar was with myself and we had a special guest, David Allen Lambert from the New England Historic Genealogical Society. And that's a pretty nice special guest. Definitely. <laughs> he has a wealth of knowledge. And yes. one of the great things about this particular webinar is that we actually invited the participants to send in their real life brick walls. And then David, using his expertise as a professional genealogist in the resources of the New England Historic Genealogical Society, was able to do a little advanced digging and offer some suggestions for the participants who had submitted their brick walls on how to get over them, which was really great. So we had some very, very happy participants. Um, I bet. Yeah, they, um, you know, got some very specific advice to their problems. But, you know, Although we were tackling some very specific problems, there are always some lessons that kind of come out that apply to everybody. And so I thought I would just share a few of those so that folks could get an idea of what they could expect to get out of this webinar. Ooh, please do. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was kind of unique is David had mentioned something called a cenotaph. And this is not something I had really um, had much exposure to, but what this is is a memorial for a deceased person whose body is not at the site. So... Essentially, that could be like an ancestor who died at sea um, or a memorial to a person, say, you know, the person isn't actually buried in a graveyard. If there was a marker there anyway, that would be a cenotaph. But we talked a little bit about um, an ancestor who might have died at sea, and he had suggested checking these cenotaph records. And I hadn't really realized that they were such a wealth of information. And so I thought that was a really good tip. Oh, Yeah. Another thing that was really kind of a common theme throughout the webinar, lots of great advice related to people getting stuck in the earlier mid-1800s, making the last known county kind of like an adopted home was the way that David put it, and I thought that was kind of clever. Um, so you aren't sure kind of where they came from before that, so just camp out there. Look at all of the microfilm deeds, the probates, the other records, and just kind of study that entire place and look at everybody who has your ancestral surname. Obviously, they're not all going to be related to you, but if you study those, you can start to see the patterns and who's related to whom, and it can help you sort out where your people came from. I imagine that would be ter a terrific strategy because as you get to know kind of what drove people there, what kept people there, what drove people out, you probably pick up a lot of clues on where would be the next logical place to look. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that also emphasizes the importance of social history in genealogy, yeah. really understanding what was going on at the time is so important because it really informs what your ancestors did or what might have happened. So when you get stuck, it can help you form a theory as to where you could look next. That is a great point. Actually, I can think of an ancestor right now <laughs> that I could use that for and, you know, go back and, like you say, just make a project of it to say, I'm camping out here until I'm getting to know the place and the people who were there, even if they're not my people, 
um, until it starts to kind of bring to the surface some new ideas. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Any other tips? Well, yeah, a couple, I, I think, um, that are kind of interesting for folks with New England ancestry, because obviously New England Historic Genealogical Society is a wealth of information about that. So David exactly. had a couple interesting points. One was involving middle names, that these pretty much came into common usage sometime around the 1790s. So, you know, a lot of New England families have compiled genealogies or family charts or things that predate that. And if you were to see a middle name recorded on something that predates the 1790s, that you could be suspicious of their accuracy because middle names were not common prior to that. And then last little tidbit that I thought I would share is prior to 1820, when the U.S. government started keeping passenger lists of immigrants the records are kind of scarce for tracing an immigrant ancestor. In New England, however, there are a lot of tombstones that actually list specific places of origin right on the stone. So if you're searching for a New England immigrant prior to 1820, check the cemetery records because there might be a place of origin listed right on the grave. So rather than just relying on, say, a book of indexed people who are buried in a location, really make the extra effort to see if you can't get a look at the actual tombstone? Definitely. I'm thinking that they may have even overlooked that information just recording names and dates. That happens a lot, especially with the uh, indexes that you find online. They'll just give you know the names and the dates and um, the epitaphs and extra information that's inscribed on the stone itself can sometimes provide additional clues. So again, another good lesson in going back to the original source. Perfect. As you can see, there were a lot of great tips in the uh, Brick Wall Busters Solutions to Real Life Stumpers webinar. And Allison did get it recorded. It's uh, available for you in the Shop Family Tree store at shopfamilytree.com. Just do a quick search on Brick Wall Busters, and I'll have a link that takes you directly to that page. Um, but you can download it. It's a direct download, correct? That's right. Wonderful. So you'll have instant access and can get to work on some of those tough brick walls. Hey, Allison, thank you so much for sharing some great tips. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining me for this August 2010 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything we covered on today's show, including links to Shop Family Tree, where you can pick up the September 2010 issue of the magazine, which of course features Sharon D. Bartolo Carmack's article called Finding Mr. Right. You'll also find the recorded webinar, Brick Wall Busters, that Allison told us about. And of course, I do hope that you'll head over to the Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness at raogk.org and maybe even consider doing a bit of volunteering yourself. And finally, head on over to familytreeuniversity.com where you can browse the upcoming classes and webinars offered online. If you have any questions or comments, please do email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website, which is genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.